Hi, and welcome to Small World Big Problems, a podcast of the Philip Merrill Center for Strategic Studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. I'm today's host, Alex Flynn, and I will be interviewing Dr. Thomas Mankin on two of the most pressing issues in defense policy, the United States' two-front war policy, and if the United States can prevail in a conflict with China. To help make sense of these questions is today's guest, Dr. Thomas Mankin. Dr. Mankin is the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. He's also a Senior Research Professor here at the Philip Merrill Center at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Previously, Dr. Mankin worked in the Office of Net Assessment at the Pentagon before serving in a variety of other positions, including Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Policy Planning. Currently, Dr. Mankin is working on an independent bipartisan commission reviewing the 2022 National Defense Strategy. Dr. Mankin, thank you for coming on the podcast. Alex, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. So I'd like to start with a conceptual question. Could you help our listeners understand the assumptions that underpinned U.S. defense planning? Sure. Well, over the past three administrations now, uh, we've essentially had a, uh, a one-war strategy or a one war plus strategy, meaning that we, we plan to fight and win one war, maybe with some uh, capabilities uh, uh, above and beyond that. And that represents a shift uh, from the strategy that we followed previously, going all the way back to the end of the Cold War, which was to be prepared to fight and win two wars. Now, in the 1990s, uh, we were more concerned about regional adversaries. Iran, Iraq, North Korea. And so with the end of the Cold War on, we, we focused there. But again, the, 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 the idea was to have the ability to fight and win two wars. After 9-11, the global war on uh, terrorism, the global campaign against uh, Al-Qaeda took over as one of those wars. But again, uh, it was important to have the capacity to, to be able to fight and win uh, a war on top of that. And really, beginning with the Obama administration, but continuing through the Trump administration and into the, the Biden administration, we've really walked away from that so that now we really have uh, a one war strategy or a one war plus strategy. And I think that's that's concerning uh, in a security environment where we face increasingly severe threats from increasingly capable adversaries. Perhaps the obvious adversary that comes to mind for most people is China. China is now the world's second largest economy, and over the past decade as it expanded onto the global stage, China has also become increasingly belligerent. What types of things does this change in defense policy? As you move towards a threat like China, if previously you were looking at Iran or, say, North Korea? Well, whether it's the most likely contingency or not, I think it would be the, the most consequential contingency, right? And... China is a, a capable adversary and becoming uh, increasingly more capable. I think in just one basic consequence for U.S. defense planning uh, in thinking about China and thinking about the Asia-Pacific theater is just the distances involved. Uh, pile on top of that, China's geographic scope, think about our, our alliances uh, in, in the theater, and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a much different proposition than thinking about a regional adversary, let alone thinking about uh, dealing with terrorist organizations as we have for much of the past 
quarter century. You mentioned the idea of distances. Obviously, China is quite far away from the United States. But I'm thinking back to the Second World War, or perhaps even earlier. The U.S. did not have a globe-spanning network of bases in places like Okinawa. How does this change the problem? And how do we think about these things now? Well, uh, geography is geography, right? So geography is the, uh, you know, is, is one of the great constants in, in warfare. And so, you know, I think the, we, we, we face today, you know, the, the tyranny of distance, just as we faced it in the 19th and 20th century. Right? So during the 20th century, during the first few decades of the 20th century, when what we were most concerned about was uh, defending what was then a U.S. territory, the Philippines, against aggression from Imperial Japan, uh, we had to face the tyranny of distance. And we had to figure out how to, how to come to grips with that, how to come to grips with an adversary that was much closer to uh, the, the, the thing that it coveted than we were. And there was some very successful innovation on the part of the U.S. Armed Services in the 1920s and 30s that figured out how to deal with the, the tyranny of distance through the development of carrier aviation, amphibious warfare, expeditionary logistics, um, and then eventually strategic bombing. Uh, today, as with the past, I think we have to come to grips with the, the, the tyranny of distance. But with the added fact, as you pointed out, that we have allies. We have allies in the Western Pacific, uh, very capable and increasingly uh, capable allies like Japan, like Australia. And we also have territory in the Western Pacific, uh, U.S. territory to include uh, to include Guam. And so those can those can help us out. But I would argue that today, as as with the past, as with a, a century ago, uh, we need to be focusing a lot of attention on on innovation, on new concepts, new capabilities to be able to deal with the reality of the of the geography of the Indo-Pacific theater. That's very interesting, particularly your comment about new concepts. Something that might lead to perhaps a worst case scenario is a conflict over Taiwan or a naval battle somewhere in the Pacific. In this case, I'm defaulting back to World War II with a battle like Midway, aircraft carriers launching planes to attack each other over the horizon. Is this the right way to think about it? Or are there newer, but say less familiar concepts that are actually more applicable here? I think that's a great question. And I, I think um, as with what we are seeing unfold in Ukraine and have seen unfold in Ukraine over the last year, what we're what we would likely see would be a mixture of the new and old. So in terms of the old uh, today, you know, as as in uh, 1945, the vast preponderance of strike capability that the U.S. Navy has uh, to conduct strikes over time uh, reside in carrier air wings. However, uh, the, the, the threat to aircraft carriers has, has ebbed and flowed in the, uh, uh, in the decades since World War II. Of course, World War II is a pretty uh, lethal environment when it came to, uh, to, to aircraft carriers. Um, and certainly other aspects of the character of war uh, have changed. Say, so you, you mentioned the Battle of Midway, right? The Battle of Midway happened because of 
good intelligence and more than a small dose of luck, good luck on the part of the U.S. and bad luck on the part of Japan. Um, today, if you think about a, an analogous situation, there would be much more reliable means of uh, spotting enemy forces and of, of enemy forces spotting us. So I would say, you know, here is in other places, probably a, a mixture of the of the old and the new. OK, so that's another interesting part of what you mentioned there which is a sort of blending of old and new and looking to Ukraine as an example or, say, a test case. Now, I know you've written a book on Chinese strategic thinking. So what type of strategic lessons do you think the Chinese draw from the conflict in Ukraine? Well, that's a, that's another outstanding question. And I would start by uh, saying a few words about just how difficult it is to learn from other people's wars. And I say that um, whether you're talking about the United States or, or China, uh, there's a whole bunch of reasons why it's, it's difficult to learn good lessons from, from war. Uh, so I, I say that as a, you know, as a, as a caution, um, both in terms of our ability to really understand the lessons that the Chinese are learning and also for us, us to, you know, the, the difficulty of us learning good lessons. But, but let me, let me, let me try. Um, first, I mean, I think there, there are some lessons uh, and, and some elements of the, uh, the Russian experience in Ukraine that have to counsel caution for the People's Liberation Army. In many ways, Russia launched the uh, the invasion of Ukraine with a lot of with a lot of benefits. Railroad lines leading right up to the Ukrainian border from both Russia and Belarus. Uh, a real uh, mismatch in terms of power, at least the way we we're, we're accustomed to thinking about power. And and uh, at least so far, the the Russians haven't been successful. So one would think that the Chinese would look at this and say, it's got to be even more difficult to uh, to cross the Taiwan Strait than just pull up to the uh, to the to the frontier of, of Ukraine and and even have the, the benefit of these kind of puppet puppet regimes in eastern Ukraine to boot. Um, and I think that's true. But to my mind, that doesn't lead to the next step, which is Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership deciding that well, it's just not it's just not worth it. Uh, I think a second set of uh, lessons would have to do with the things that the uh, the PLA and the Chinese leadership would see as Russian mistakes and mistakes that are correctable. For example, the, the Russian invasion manifestly failed to capture Kiev early in the conflict. It manifestly failed at decapitating the Ukrainian government, killing, capturing President Zelensky and, and his, his cabinet or forcing them to flee. Um, if those things had happened, this would be a very different war. As a matter of fact, it might not even be a war at this point. The war might be over. So if I was in Beijing, I would think about how I might do a better job than the Russians did of trying to decapitate the Taiwanese government. Uh, similarly, Russia has engaged in uh, its share of nuclear saber rattling, but it really only began that after the, the conflict had begun. 
And if I was in Beijing, I might think about how I might rattle the nuclear saber earlier and more often, even before uh, before a prospective conflict. Because I think one of the things uh, that observers in Beijing could conclude is that the U.S. has been um, wary of intervening in ways that might call into question the prospect of nuclear escalation. And then there's also likely a, a third basket of lessons that the Chinese are learning that we're not even paying attention to. So, you know, the PLA, for example, pays a lot of attention to what they call political work, which is the political indoctrination of, of troops, um, educating troops as to why they're fighting and what they're doing. And I think the, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine from Beijing's perspective among other things, looks like a massive failure of political work that, that has led to demoralization of Russian forces. And that's the type of thing that we should expect them to correct, uh, to work actively to explain to uh, PLA soldiers why they might have to fight in Taiwan and why they might have to kill large number of, of Taiwanese. So that's just uh, that's just a start, but I think understanding uh, the lessons that uh, that the Chinese are taking from this war and learning our own lessons, by the way, uh, needs to be a, a a real area of emphasis going forward. You mentioned quite a lot there, and I think at one point you mentioned we should be trying to learn our own lessons from the war. Recently, you wrote in Foreign Affairs about issues derived from the state of the defense industrial base in the United States and our ability to supply our allies or even ourselves in a future conflict. What do you think we should be thinking about as it relates to defense policy and our defense industrial base now? Yeah, look, among other things, the war in Ukraine really has demonstrated the inadequacy of our current defense industrial base to 21st century warfare. You know, for, for many years after the end of the Cold War, the, the real watchword for defense industry was efficiency. Um, and efficiency is fine, but it does ultimately need to take a backseat to effectiveness, at least when it comes to warfighting. And I think what we've seen, and, and munitions is just, you know, one, one example of that, uh, is that efficiency has come to come at the expense of uh, of effectiveness? So there's a lot more that we need to do to uh, to build out the defense industrial base uh, for our needs and for the needs of our allies and also the needs of our friends. If the United States is unable to produce the necessary munitions at scale to support a high intensity conflict, does this increase the likelihood that? The Chinese pursue military action against Taiwan. Look, I, I think we we can produce necessary munitions at scale to be able to support military operations against China, but I think we need to start by asking um, what munitions are required and of what scale. So I think it's just a it's it's just a basic fact uh, that you pay for range. In other words. The longer range uh, munition, the munition, the more you pay for it. It just, it's, it's just, it's just uh, physics and engineering. 
that you pay more to uh, hurl a chunk of metal uh, through the atmosphere, the, the, the farther you're hurling that chunk of metal. Uh, similarly, you pay for precision, right? You pay for precision in terms of sensors, guidance, and control. So I think we, we need to start by asking what type of munitions would be required and at what scale. And, and the answer may be very different than what we're seeing in Ukraine. Although I think what Ukraine is telling us is that 21st century high intensity warfare is very munitions intensive. So in terms of numbers, the numbers are likely to be high, but the, uh, the, the, the types of munitions are really like to be, likely to be shaped by the, the geography of the Indo-Pacific region. And we also need to realize that you know, our, uh, our munitions industrial base serves not only us, but our allies and our friends, right? So we need to have a, a, a munitions industrial base that's robust enough to serve our own needs, but also those of our allies and also our friends, right? So today it's, it's, it's not just about the U.S., but it's also arming U.S. allies, and it's also about U arming the Ukrainians. In the future, it's going to be us and not just us, but our allies and also uh um, arming the, the Taiwanese. So you, we have to get much more, uh, a much more robust industrial base. The good news is, I mean, in, in, uh, you know, in the United States of the, uh, of the 21st century, there's, there's plenty of, there's plenty of, uh, of capacity to, to do that. If we just, if, if we just tap into it. Spare capacity is certainly important. And, I guess you could think of it as untapped potential. But when I read about arming Ukraine, it's often about supplying F-16s or the more exquisite platforms. These platforms have long lead times and significant logistics tails. So while those things would be helpful, I question whether they would arrive in a timely manner. Like what parts of the defense industrial base should we prioritize in the near term that are impactful? Yeah, well, look, in, in, in the, the near term, the things that we can prioritize uh, are things like munitions and expendables, things where existing capacity can be ramped up. Um, but you're right. We also need to be ramping up production of larger, larger systems, or at least the capacity to produce at, at greater rates, as well as the capacity to repair. And I think those are both areas that have been neglected. But that also takes time, right? So uh, to take, you know, to take uh, a couple of examples, um, we aspire to be able to produce two nuclear attack submarines a year, and soon to be augmented by one uh, nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarine a year. Um, we're also talking to our Australian allies and our British allies, prospectively, about uh, uh, support uh, to Australia. Um, and that would be, you know, an, an even greater tax on our on our industrial base there. We're also facing a shortfall of U.S. nuclear powered submarines as the, the submarines that were purchased at the end of the Cold War age out. So that's another another area where we should manifestly be doing more for ourselves and then also for our allies. But you're not going to fix 
the submarine industrial base overnight. It's going to take years and years of dedicated effort. You could say the same thing about, say, aircraft carriers, if we decided that we needed to to increase the rate of production there. Uh, manned aircraft. There, there's only so, so far you can go. So for those areas, I think we should be looking more heavily at ways to augment through, it's called manned-on-manned teaming, uh, uh, pairing, uh, manned aircraft or manned platforms with unmanned platforms, manned ships uh, with with unmanned ships, uh, submarines with you know unmanned undersea vehicles, things like that. Because those those unmanned systems, although not as capable likely as their uh, their manned counterparts, uh, are are the types of things that we can produce sooner and in larger numbers than the uh, than the big ticket high end items. I'm thinking of Starlink right now, which, as you know, is a private company, but also it's become, call it adjacent to the defense industrial base. Certainly, I don't think it's as important as, say, a Lockheed Martin, but it has had a significant impact in Ukraine. How do these newer companies that perhaps were not traditionally thought of as having a role in a conflict or on the battlefield in general change the strategic calculus? Yeah, look, that's a that's a really good question, uh, and certainly there's been a, a lot of talk in recent years about drawing upon civilian innovation, civilian industry to aid national defense. And I think you know, look, uh, and space is a great example of that, really, where so much of the vibrancy of the U.S. space industry is coming from private industry. Again, Starlink is one aspect of that, but there are so many. So many programs, so many companies that are doing really innovative, transformational things in in space, including things that really benefit national security. Um, that's the good story. The the maybe not so good story, or the or the or the question that I have is uh, whether the experience of Ukraine uh, can translate to China. In other words, we've seen U.S. companies like Starlink, many others, really rise to the challenge uh, in support of Ukraine in the face of Russian aggression. I think it's an open question whether they would be as willing, let alone as able to do so in the case of a U.S.-China conflict. Um, I think that's, uh, you know, that's, that's an open question, although certainly as time goes on, and as um, more and more people take seriously the challenge posed by by uh, by China, I think more and more in private industry are going to have to take you know take that into consideration. Uh, but as you say, or as 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 I said at the outset, rather, I mean, I think that's a really really good question, and it's a it's it's a key one as we move forward. I know we've spoken extensively about the competition with China. So if the United States spends all its energy focused on China as its most serious threat. Does that mean that we potentially might lose sight of, say, the middle powers, countries such as North Korea, Iran, or perhaps even Russia? Look, absolutely. And that's why, you know, at the outset, I said we, we really need to think about a, uh, you know, a, a, a two-war strategy because we should never be in a position where we mortgage our national security for a, for a bet on a single contingency. 
Um, the basic fact is that the United States is uh, a global power, not a, not a super regional power. There have been multiple administrations that earnestly wanted to get the United States out of the Middle East, for example, because of the cost uh, that we were bearing, because of the frustrations. There have been administrations that wanted to earnestly reduce our presence in Europe. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work. <laughs> the basic fact is that the United States is a global power. And certainly the, the Biden administration came into office focused with laser-like intensity on China. And I do believe that China is the most consequential challenge that we face. But we saw a year ago, um, the downside of, of, of over-focusing. So we do need to prepare seriously for the most consequential threat, which is China, but we can't afford to do so to the exclusion of all the other threats that we face. And, and that includes threats from Russia, post, however Ukraine turns out, post-Ukraine. It includes the challenges posed by Iran and North Korea. And it includes the challenges posed by by terrorist organizations. Uh, those will, you know, however much we might wish it to be otherwise, those are going to be threats that we're going to need to face going forward. That's interesting. You talk about previous administrations wanting to pull back from Europe or the Middle East. And I would guess the presumption is that our partners and allies would take on a greater role, specifically with something like NATO. Why do you think that hasn't happened, or is it finally happen happening now with the threats faced by the United States? Well, look, I think we should acknowledge first that that NATO defense spending, even even before uh, even before the outbreak of the war in Ukraine, NATO defense spending in many countries uh, increased. So we should acknowledge that that in recent years NATO has done more. Uh, uh, for for defense, but I think it's also apparent that uh, that that was inadequate. And just as I as I noted, there are inadequacies in the U.S. defense industrial base. There certainly are inadequacies in NATO uh, force posture, uh, defense industrial base, all sorts of things. Um, I think you know there there was wishful thinking on the part of uh, of a number of of NATO allies. Uh, there was perhaps over-reliance on, on the United States on the part of, uh, of some. And I'm at least hopeful that, that the experience of Ukraine will be a, a healthy reset as far as NATO is concerned. Because frankly, uh, post-Ukraine, uh, NATO needs to be able to do a lot uh, to deal with Russia in Europe. And I say do a lot, not 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 on its own, not European NATO on its own, but needs to be able to carry its weight when it comes to dealing with uh, Russia in Europe. The better it can do that, the better equipped the United States will be, not only to to assist NATO against Russia in Europe, but also to deal with uh, the challenge posed by by China and and the other challenges that we talked about just a couple minutes ago. I don't think I can count the number of articles I've read in foreign policy or foreign affairs about a U.S. transition away from NATO. 
often put forward is this idea that Germany, France, or perhaps the United Kingdom takes a more prominent and leading role in the alliance. Do you think our allies would support that, or is this just wishful thinking on the part of certain Americans? I think the United States is the essential glue that holds that holds NATO together. I think uh, I think our allies recognize that. I think the Russians recognize that. So I think the United States needs to continue to to lead. And uh, that having been said, um, if we look at kind of what what U.S. leadership of NATO meant during the Cold War, when by and large our NATO allies took defense very seriously. Uh, and today, I think there's just a lot more that that certain NATO allies should be doing uh, to really benefit their own defense. When it comes to things like uh, command arrangements, again, I think those are things that can be discussed and debated and probably should be discussed and debated. I don't think it's about the United States leaving NATO. I think it's about uh, European NATO members and also Canada uh, doing more to contribute to collective defense. Dr. Mankin, we're coming up on our time here. So I wanted to say that when we formed the podcast, we did it to be able to explore the most compelling issues facing the world today. And for the last question, I'd actually like to turn it over to you. What issue or problem do you think we should be paying more attention to? Well, this may sound um, self-serving coming from someone who spent the, the better part of his career in education. But I really think the problem that, that deserves more attention than it's gotten is the need to really rebuild our intellectual capital when it comes to, uh, to strategy and war. And that means rebuilding intellectual capital uh, on China and on Russia, to take two examples as adversaries, but also the need to build intellectual capital on the character of, of modern war and strategy in general. As we've talked about throughout this podcast, you know, what we're seeing today is a mixture of the old and the new. And without an understanding of the old, you can't figure out what's genuinely new, right? If you, if you don't understand uh, the enduring features of, of warfare and strategy, you can't figure out what's novel and you just, everything seems like it's new and you're just, you know, uh, kind of like a hamster on a treadmill, just trying to learn the same thing over and over again. It's by understanding the, the continuities, the things that aren't new, that we can actually focus on, on what is genuinely novel. And that's another area or set of areas where we need to build more intellectual capital. So I don't, you know, I don't necessarily know that we'll win the next war by outproducing uh, our adversary as we, as we, uh, as we did in in World War II. But a lot of what we did in World War II was also outthinking our adversaries, whether it was Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, Fascist Italy. Um, oftentimes, when we go back and think about World War II, we uh, look the industrial uh, capacity, the arsenal of democracy, all that was real. Uh, but we also developed a, a, a superior strategy, and and we should be thinking about um, building up that capability, just as we're also thinking about rebuilding our our de defense industrial base. Awesome. On that note, Dr. Mankin, thank you for coming on the podcast. If people would like to read your books, learn more about the topic or the other things that you've written on, 
how can they how can they find you? Uh, well, Amazon is a good place as any to to start, uh, or you know, put in put in my name and uh, and see what see what pops up. Awesome, thanks. Small world, big problems can be found on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to become part of the podcast, suggest a guest for the show, or just send us your feedback, please email us at SiceStrategyPodcast at gmail.com. The podcast will be back in two weeks with a new host and our next guest. See you all soon.